Hello, this is Rod Allen. And this is John Almeida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Joel, today we're going to be talking to Jeff Hopkins. And Jeff is the uh, principal and founder of uh, Pacific School of Innovation and Inquiry, uh, a, a great educational uh, addition to the educational ecosystem here in British Columbia. Uh, prior to that, he was the superintendent of schools in the Gulf Islands in southern British Columbia uh, and began working uh, on PSII uh, in early uh, 2013, and a school opened in September 2013. Jeff's a longtime uh, educator, English teacher, liter English literature, social studies, all the humanities, uh, with a healthy dose of physics and math just to keep things, uh, keep things interesting. Uh, we could spend a long time talking about Jeff's um, checkered past, uh, but I think important to note as well that Jeff was BC's first safe schools coordinator for the Ministry of Education when, when that work was, was just beginning, uh, working to address issues of intimidation, harassment, marginalization uh, through strategies that so, like uh, supporting inclusion, equity, restorative practices, and creating welcoming school environments. So Jeff has a wealth of experience uh, to bring to this conversation. So uh, welcome, Jeff. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, Ron. Thank you. Great to meet you, Jeff. You too, John. Uh, Jeff, maybe um, let's start with, um, tell us a little bit about PSII, Pacific School of Innovation and Inquiry. What, what's, what's distinctive about, about your school? How long is your podcast? Um, <laughs> we have three hours for this conversation. <laughs> oh, great. So. <laughs> okay, perfect. I'll do 2.59. Um, so, uh, well, it, in our name, um, we actually have innovation and inquiry in the name. And so those are two things that we definitely had at the top of the list when we founded the school. Um, put it right in the title just to make it clear to people what they what they were signing up for or not. <laughs> and uh, so inquiry, we take pretty seriously. So questions... Uh, we really mean it when we say inquiry because uh, questions actually drive our learners' curriculum. So when they come in, the very first thing they do is they, they, we help them develop a set of questions that can be about anything at all in the world or themselves. And they use those questions to drive their interdisciplinary curriculum uh, all the way through to graduation. In the background, we kind of match it up with the BC curriculum so people can, can graduate because that kind of gets translated into courses. But we get our learners to sort of stay away from that that way of looking at things uh, as much as possible so that they're just looking at the learning, the, following the curiosity, looking at how things connect to other things, um, sort of transcending the those course silos. Very personalized, um, lots of uh, uh, differentiated space so that learners are able to access that learning in lots of different ways, um, sometimes in groups, uh, sometimes independently. Sometimes a group of teacher put together, sometimes a group of learner put together, um, lots of connection with community. So I could go on and on, but those are kind of the, the broad strokes. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, it's it's a pretty uh, cool space. And, and maybe before I turn it over to Jal, I'll, I'll just also comment that... Um, uh, in, in my ministry days, Jeff was was a was a. Luckily, he was just down the street, and it was a great place to take new ministers of education, who would often come into the portfolio and going. So, what is all this talk about transformation? And you know, what's we we were lucky to have uh, PSAI and Jeff there uh, close by to sort of offer a great example to take ministers to and and. Um, Say this is kind of what we're talking about. This is this is a, a shining example just down the block. So uh, thanks thanks for your tutelage of of uh, many of our our, our provincial uh, folks, Jeff. Much appreciated. Oh, my, our pleasure. I mean, we I guess I should mention that too before we move on. But just we are trying to provide a model for other schools. We're not just trying to do great things in a little a little school that you know, and that's it. We we really would like to put ourselves out of business and make make what we're doing um, easier for everybody else so that they can just do it, you know, as well as us or instead of us. So, I, you know, bringing ministers in is really helpful. So, Jeff, what, uh, what motivated the creation of your school? What's the why that underlies the school? I think there's a few things, but when I was in high school myself, um, I found it 
sort of felt like we were sort of squandering some fabulous resources. We had all this, you know, all of these great um, physical resources and uh, intellectual resources all around us, really great people who cared and wanted to, you know, do good things. And then we were sort of in a structure that I'd often hear teachers saying, oh, I would do that except, or we should do that, but we won't. Um, and then also just not really finding an opportunity to, to go into depth for, with things that um, sometimes really piqued our interest. So, you know, we might have a little conversation about something that got really interesting and then we're done because we have to, you know, move on from chapter six to chapter seven because we're, you know, marching through this, uh, this sort of this imaginary um, container for curriculum. So I think it started pretty young for me. Uh, I kind of was in and out of high school a lot, uh, mostly out, um, kind of eventually decided to come back in and finish. And then throughout my career as a teacher, just sort of seeing where those gaps were for other learners and watching people engaged or disengaged for different reasons and, and you know what was engaging them what was disengaging them and then you know lots of research lot seeing lots of great um people talking about various aspects of things that were uh could be positive in schools and sort of one day just thought why don't we have a school where all of those things happen at the same time in the same place on purpose um, in a structure that allows it instead of trying out this thing and then trying out that thing and sort of pasting it half-heartedly into a, into a structure that doesn't really support it that well. So it was just, let, let's put it all together and let's do it. So Penny sort of dropped when I was a superintendent, uh, but it had been building for a long time. Joel, would it, could I ask you the same question? You're a fellow traveler on this, on this uh, transformation, deeper learning route. Um, what, what led you to, uh, to, to, to join this this uh, this journey, I think it was quite similar to Jeff. Actually, um, not so much in my own high school, which was a private progressive school, which I liked a lot. But once I went out and saw a bunch of schools with Sarah Fine as part of our deeper learning research, I think the words we used for it were something like uh, a play that no one had signed up to be part of. Um, so the, the students would say, why are the teachers doing this to us? And the teachers would say, you know, well, why are the students, you know, competing for grades? And the, the students would say, well, how come the teachers are, you know, wondering why we're not getting a 98 on this or that? And so there was a sort of similar sense that, um, what the people were hoping to do was being held back by the structure. And you could just see that so glaringly when you visited schools because the same kids who had been chattering with lots of excitement in the hallway would walk through the door and it was like, you know, a little light switch turned off and the same people looked like they were sort of stoically resigned to their fate. And then they would come back out. And usually when Sarah and I were doing our research, they would give us, uh, you know, for lunch, they would, you know, give us some sandwiches and put us in a conference room or something with some kids. And all of a sudden, the hallway kids were back, you know, the excited, interested amateur anthropologists who could tell us all the things about the schools that the adults were kind of glossing over. And so um, similarly to Jeff, I, I just felt like there was a sort of huge waste of, of human potential. Uh, Rod, why don't, why don't we turn that one to, to you as well? You're, you're a third traveler in this journey. Um, what, what about you? Well, I, um, I, I would agree with, I, I think, a very similar uh, tracks, I think, to, to, to both of you. Um, you know, certainly as a student, I, I, I became aware of the inequities of the education system, and I became a, a, once I became aware that the kind of learning opportunities I was being um, offered um, weren't typical of other kids. And, and that was quite shocking. I thought the, the kinds of things that I got, everyone was getting. And that, of course, was, wasn't necessarily um, true. And, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't quite figure out why that was. Um, but, but then as, you know, Jeff, as I, I sort of, as he said, I flash forward to beginning as a teacher and realizing pretty quickly uh, how much I hated to hear myself babble on about all the content stuff. Not, not that I couldn't do it, um, <laughs> but uh, just how silly that seemed. Uh, I was teaching in, in my first three years in an indigenous community in the far north, and somehow, you know, teaching about uh, ancient Egypt seemed a little weird. 
um, when there was other things that we could be talking about and and other things that we could be focusing on. So I I think it began um, that way, which is partly why I was attracted to sort of that middle school age, because it seemed that in middle schools, you had permission to do whatever you wanted, as long as the kids didn't burn the school down. As a teacher, I, I sort of felt that way. So I, I adored teaching at those at those grade levels. Um, because kids have all those passions, and and I, uh, I, I just loved the energy and the passion from students, and I saw it get crushed out of them, um, as as they moved through the system, and and that was heartbreaking. Isn't there a more specific version of that story where, y- at some point, you just decided to stop doing what they were telling you to do and actually doing things that might matter to the people who are actually in front of you? Well, yeah, as long as my old principal isn't listening, um, <laughs> she, she, I was required to hand in a timetable with all the minutes put in. Uh, how many minutes a day was I spending on math and how many minutes a day was I spending on language arts and so on? And and I just handed in a, a blank timetable and um, I got came back to me saying, you forgot to fill it in. I said, no, I didn't. Um, and then I just put stuff in, uh, I put the word stuff in each block. Um, and it got came back and then I put learning stuff in and then it came back and then I, I added minutes. We're going to be learning stuff for 45 minutes here and learning stuff for, you know, and so on. And by that point, um, she gave up um, and left me alone, uh, but spent a lot of time on my class, which was great. So I, I didn't mind it. And um, I later uh, was her assistant superintendent when she became superintendent. We we adored each other and uh, and had a lot of fun together. But yeah, you just—it was just sort of that. Uh, what I'm being asked to teach isn't isn't what's working, and I need to do some other things, and I need to rely on the information I'm getting from my kids, the kids in front of me. They're going to tell me what I need to do. And Jeff, before you started your own school, did you bump up against this? Did you find yourself, you know, doing things that you didn't necessarily believe in, or being asked to do things that you didn't believe in? Yeah, all the time. Um, there, were, I would try to. Sometimes I would try to find workarounds. Sometimes I would try to find a way to justify it to say, "Yeah, this is this is okay because," and then sort of, you know, kind of grin and bear it, um, feeling not so great at the end of the day. You know, look not really able to really look myself in the mirror. And and uh, a very similar story to Rod's when I was a student teacher. Actually, um, I just about didn't make it. Uh, I I took the time column out of my student teacher uh, class. Uh, lesson plan. And I had a supervisor from the university uh, who wasn't very happy about that. Um, so we sort of reached a point where it was either, you know, you can ask me to leave or but I don't want to do that anymore. And then I guess they just they didn't ask me to leave and just kind of watch to make sure like just to kind of see what happened next and turned out okay. So so uh, that that helped a little bit too. <laughs> Yikes. I, I... I was gonna say I, I uh, my on my second practicum, my first um evaluator failed me um, because I, the kids were not in their seats enough. They were moving around the classroom too much. Um, and, and, and she viewed it as complete chaos. Uh, the, the classroom teacher loved it and, and uh, uh, you know, finding conductors for, for batteries and bulbs, things and moving around the classroom, trying to find things that conduct electricity. And when a kid found their braces worked, um, that was a, 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 a pretty exciting moment. And, Evaluator said, "Don't you know that kid could have killed themselves?" Could have said, "Not with a dead D cell." But anyway, <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, I know we're going to talk later about system transformation, but in the meantime, for the teachers that are out there, you know, Rick Hess has a book called "The Cage Busting Teacher," which is about you know teachers who did innovative things in restrictive systems. Um, our friend Elisa Berger, who works with Rod and I, was the principal of the New York City I School for a while and actually read the New York City handbook of what you could and couldn't do. And it turned out that there were many things that were sort of commonly accepted as against the rules, that there was no actual rule written down saying that you couldn't do it if you really wanted to do it. So is what the two of you suggesting that there's actually more space and room, even in the absence of the kinds of changes that we're going to talk about later in the podcast for teachers to, you know, take more risks and do things that they think will work for their students? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I think I would say yes, but, but, um, uh, the, the yes is there is more room. Um, 
there is more room than most people give themselves credit for. And often I'll hear someone cite a, you know, a quote unquote rule. Uh, and it's like, where, where did that come from? And, you know, someone said it to them with, you know, really believing it was true. And they probably heard it from someone who said it to them who really believed it to be true, but it, but it isn't, it's just become sort of a, you know, mythological, you know, boundary. Um, but despite all that space, I think we have a culture where you have to work very hard to, use that space and go to those edges because there are a lot of tools and structures that are built around um, a very powerful mainstream uh, that flows strongly. <laughs> and uh, when you try to go against it or in a slightly different direction, you'll find that you're, you sort of hit up against, you know, you're missing some tools sometimes that would make your life a lot easier. Uh, you're arguing with people more often. You have to justify things that you're doing uh, more often. Um, so yes, you can, but it's, it's, it can be very tiring. It's, it's tough swimming upstream. I used to think it's, a, it's like, yes, you can, but you, you know, but you have to swim completely upstream and that is exhausting and, and tiring and, and, uh, tough, tough to maintain. Um, uh, I think yes, as a teacher, and I think, I think probably the most autonomous job I ever had was being a classroom teacher. Um, once I realized you can actually kind of close the door and do, do what's right. And as long as the kids and parents are with you, um, and, and learning's happening, um, you know, you, you kind of have a, a free reign. Um, took me a while to figure that out and, and some, as Jeff suggested, some bruises and scar tissue built up over the years, uh, around that. But I, I'm, I'm recalling, a, um, in, in our, in my ministry days, we, when we were wanting to encourage people to be more innovative, we, we used a David Albury um, suggestion, which was to say, put out to the system, if there, and, and we said, if there's a rule or a policy, uh, something that's getting in the way of you doing something good for kids that you know is good for kids, tell us what it is and we'll see if we can give you a free pass. The minister of the day used to call it a get out of jail free card. We'll give you a get out of jail free card. And, and so, and the cards and letters poured in and, and we found as David predicted that just about 90% of those things that came in, people already had permission to do. There was no rule or anything about, uh, against doing whatever it is they wanted to do. There was, there was custom and there was tradition and there was, oh, I never even thought to check cause I just knew it wasn't allowed to do that. Um, so I, I think, you know, the institution, the, the, is, is such a daunting edifice that it's uh it's hard to ch people it takes a lot of courage to challenge um the system over and over and over again yeah can we talk a little bit about how you build a culture of innovation maybe i'll send that first to jeff and then to rod and let me just say one thing about what motivates my question remember once i was working with a superintendent who had been a teacher i think similar to the two of you very innovative and go-getter-ish and then she had found herself as the superintendent and, you know, was really excited for teacher level innovation. And so they put together a little fund for, you know, for there to be money. And they sort of put out the word that any rule could potentially be waived if people wanted to do something differently. And then uh, nothing. And she came to me in kind of despair and said, look, if I had been the teacher and they had offered this, I would have taken it, you know, this way and that way. And I remember thinking, okay, but not every teacher is exactly like you. And now you're in charge of the whole system. So you have a lot of things you could potentially do. And you're just kind of sitting back and, you know, wondering why people aren't innovating. And that doesn't seem like a very good strategy from the person who's leading the the system. So Jeff, maybe you could talk about that at the, the school level and then Rod at the, the district or province level. Sure. I, um, for me, I think I learned how to do it at the district level, um, partly because I was in a, a district, um, the, the Southern Gulf Islands, as Rod mentioned, which is often described as an argument surrounded by water. And so people kind of do whatever they want to do all the time. Um, but what was happening there is we, we, it wasn't particularly innovative. And in fact, it was really suffering as a result of it, but it had all of the ingredients to be one of the most innovative places ever because of the people and the place itself and just all sorts of things. So um, we, we did a couple of things. One 
One was giving people a little bit of, uh, well, being overt about the permission, um, but knowing that that's not enough, doing a bit of teaching. So we did quite a bit of work on um, like looking at uh, uh, neurodevelopment of uh, adolescents, children and adolescents. We did a lot of work on what does constructivism look like? How could How would you transform something if you wanted to? And then we also adopted a coaching model to replace the old and stuffy teacher evaluation model, which was basically satisfactory, unsatisfactory. Um, and we went to a model, which is what are some of your personal professional goals and could we help you meet them? And we, we engaged a, a school that trained people to be uh, professional coaches um, who worked with every single one of our principals and me and our district staff first for a year. And then with all of our principals and vice principals, and then with all of our teachers and principals and vice principals um, for a number of years, and they're still doing it. It was probably the most powerful thing we did because it actually helped people see very clearly um, through you know those powerful coaching questions, but also through support to say how can I how can I make change? How, I don't know how to make change. Like I even if they want to, or maybe they don't even they know they want to change, but they don't know what to change to. Um, the the coaching approach really, really helped as opposed to that kind of mentorship approach where there's this person who has it all figured out and they tell you what to do. Um, that that doesn't tend to lead to a lot of innovation unless you happen to find the really innovative mentor. Yeah, I I, I loved because uh, Jeff was, you know, in the past has been telling me about the about the coaching that went on and, and it was such a uh, a strong way to do things. And I think such a powerful message that Jeff sent when he began by being coached himself and, and sort of being coached, I, I recall in a few times quite publicly um, um, to say, this is okay. This is how we grow. This is how we, we challenge our barriers and so on. And so I think, I think that that modeling was super important. Before you uh, continue, there's a, uh, there's a great Atul Gawande article, which you may have read, in the New Yorker where he as a surgeon hires a coach and uh, you know, on that same theory, like everybody could, could do with a coach and the patient looks at him and says like, well, who's, who's that guy sitting over your left shoulder? And he says, Oh, that's my coach. And the patient looks a little queasy and he says, you know, it's, it's okay. I know what I'm doing. It's just, I'm trying to get better. So. Yeah. C could you give him the scalpel please? Cause <laughs> <laughs> they probably never said that to Michael Jordan's coach. Could you give your coach the ball? Um, <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. But no, no, that's a great story. It's a great story. But, but I think often we, as leaders, we, we say we want people to change. We encourage them to change. And yet we, we continue to keep all the power. And I think a lot of change is actually about power dynamics or lack of change is about power dynamics. And so tr if we continue to evaluate in the same way, and like I'm thinking teacher evaluations, those old, dusty old ways of looking at uh, teacher expertise and so on, um, to say, we'd like you to do something different, take some risks, and yet we're going to continue to evaluate you and pay you uh, in those same old ways. Those two things don't square very well. And, and so... Uh, one of the things that that um, we did in Couchin is I did when I came to Couchin was one be a disruptive force and just like Jeff is describing what himself is I think one of the roles of leadership is to be disruptive. That doesn't mean blowing everything up at the same time, but being uh, tactfully or, or tactically uh, disruptive, um, const constantly questioning and, and being and being curious about different ways to do things. And the second thing was took away teacher and principal, vice principal evaluations. We just put a moratorium on those things. We're not doing those anymore. It's more important that uh, we felt that teachers would uh, work with their with their administrators, their principals and vice principals, sort of almost as co-conspirators for change, rather than uh, in in a power dynamic where the principal has you know if, if if I don't like something, take a risk. If I don't like it, it's going in your report. Kind of a Belief, even though I don't know any principals that ever did that, there was always that fear sitting out there that 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 might happen, and so we kind of wanted to take that off the off the table and and really get to the challenging conversations um, about doing some things differently. So, I, I, uh, long way to get to, I think, uh, thinking differently about the power structures and the hierarchical structures in an organization can get you to uh, more quickly towards innovation and innovative kinds of cultures. 
Jeff, you you mentioned um, when you're on the Gulf Islands, your your work, very overt work with with uh, uh, how the brain works and um, uh, constructivism, how 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 human beings learn. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and and how how has that found its way into what you're doing at PSII? How has that continued to be woven into your work? Yeah, well, in the Gulf Islands, it was funny because we you sort of forget that you know your board a board for example a school board is people in the community who care about kids and learning but may not know that much about it and so we 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 used to have these board retreats where the board would sort of plan big picture things for the district and thought you know wouldn't it be neat if they knew something about how people learned um you know for sure like for real um and we and they liked it a lot they really liked it because it also empowered them because they felt you know a little bit better equipped to have conversations with people as they as they learned more about how learning works um i think for me that continued into this school which was really saying you know there, there's a lot we know about how people learn compared to what we used to think we knew about how people learned so we should you know employ it um even, you know, when you get into assessment, which I, I know we're going to probably talk about later as its very own thing, but just if someone's trying to master something and they're getting better, the, the learning shouldn't be measured by, um, you know, 10 sort of snapshots and you take an average of them all to see how they did. It should be, did you get better? Good. Um, what was the result? Excellent. Uh, sounds like you mastered it. Um, not, you know, the first one was one out of 10, the last one was 10 out of 10. And so you, you take this average, which tells you nothing about the journey or the learning. Um, so just, you know, little things like that, but also recognizing that uh, I think Rod used the word agency, just people need agency, they need, they need room to take risk, they need to know that the risk is it's real, but that there's no actual threat. Um, you're not measuring every single thing they do, you're measuring their intention. And so a lot of our work is about what, what's your intention? And how do you think you're doing towards towards that intention? Um, and, the, and that's not even going to become an evaluation until we're ready for it to be an evaluation. It's just an assessment to help the person look at their learning. So, you know, I was going to say little things like that, but, you know, they're, they're, they seem little, but they're very big. Yeah, I think um, constructivism is a very powerful uh, lens. I think, you know, the research that shows that even adults have trouble listening to people talk for more than 15 or 20 minutes at a time and remembering anything that they say. Um, you, you know, anyone who has been to a college lecture probably already knew that, but it's nice to have it uh, fully, fully documented. Um, one interesting thing I think about constructivism is I think constructivism as a theory of learning is indisputable in that it, you know, as we're talking right now, anyone who is listening to us has their own schema that they've developed across their lifetime. And thus what we're saying is hitting that schema in a slightly different way. And thus what they're taking from our conversation will be slightly different. That I think is indisputable. I think as a theory of teaching, it kind of depends. Like, I think there are times where, you know, a little bit of, um, you know, do it this way, or this is, you know, this technique would be helpful to you can be great. I think sometimes when you know a lot about a subject, listening to a lecture by someone who knows even more can be better than, you know, turn to your left, turn to your right, talk to the person next to you and your audience. You know, if you're you're there to hear Cornell West, like you, you want to know what Cornell West has to say about the about the topic. Um, so yeah, I, I wonder what you think about that. I, I kind of think that constructivism as a theory of learning is true, but uh, for teaching, it really depends on the goal and the moment and the technique and so forth. Yeah, I think when you talk about well, about schema, because they are that is so personal, um, that there's a readiness factor. And if someone, if you made someone listen to a lecture that they weren't, there's really, it wasn't going to attached to their schema in any way because there's no readiness and there's no real curiosity, that's not going to work very well. But that very same lecture, if someone asked for it, um, is extremely powerful. And we do a lot of work at our school where we connect with, you know, quote unquote experts. We just had a meeting with a geneticist and I almost fell asleep listening to her talk, even though it was incredible. But the kids were leaning in, writing everything down, nodding, smiling, um, asking a million questions at, because they were ready. 
they, they, they needed to ask the questions. Um, so, you know, the, the very same technique could, could be the best thing ever or the worst thing ever, depending on the people who are experiencing it. So maybe not one size fits all. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not. Hmm. So here's a question about a school like yours that prioritizes learner agency. I think sometimes people think like, okay, if you asked a bunch of 15-year-olds for their interests, they would say, you know, video games and basketball and, um, you know, members of the opposite sex or the same sex, whichever uh, gender they were interested in dating. Um, How do you get from that to, you know, as to use the genetics example, like what's the magic in getting kids hooked on things that don't seem like things that would be obviously things that they would be immediately interested in? That's a great question because the first thing we get is actually not even as good as video games and being interested in relationships. It's uh, I'm not interested in anything we'll often get from kids who have been in the mainstream school system since kindergarten. Um, I always make this comment. If you go into a kindergarten class and say how many people are singers, everybody puts their hand up. If you go into a grade 10 class and say how many people are singers, maybe one person puts their hand up, even if they're the same kids, um, you know, six years later. Um, So what we find is if someone starts, let's say I'm interested in video games and they're usually embarrassed and they don't want to admit it and that might really be the only thing they're interested in. I was like, okay, great. Why are you interested in video games? What kind of games? Um, When do you play them? Who do you play them with? Um, What did you used to play? Why don't you play it anymore? Uh, What are you looking forward to? What is it about the game that you like? Um, So we start to get into that, you know, kind of evaluative sort of level. If you think about good old Bloom's taxonomy and things like that, and they start to think about like, why do I like this game? And then there's a psychology to it. And there's uh, often a, you know, a, a brain component to it about, you know, dopamine and serotonin and all these other things. Um, then they start to get really interested in all of the, the tangents that go off of that quite naturally because it matters all of a sudden to them. Um, so it doesn't take very long before they move off the kind of the, the, the one hit wonders of, uh, you know, the video game into uh, a lot of other things, um, genetics, brain science, psychology, um, sociology, human behavior, um, all, all kinds of things. Yeah, I'm reminded of a of a a, a teacher here in, in Couchin who um, asked his students the same thing. What you know? What do you like? And it was like, and it was uh, video games. Um, and he, as as you did, dug in, and um, it led to two really interesting programs. One was a, a physical fitness PE program for kids that, that played more than, I forget the number, I think it was 25 or 30 hours of video games a week um, who weren't overly active. Uh, but, a, but a PE program around the kinds of moves and things that they needed to learn uh, um, with lots of martial arts pieces. But of course, then you back that up and you've got to do a lot of physical training. And, and it was just amazing to watch these kids um, shift uh, the, their their views about themselves as as physical human beings um, that from a you know it just started with the conversation about going deeper and oh what is it you like about games what kind of games do you like and the second part that they did was a was a, a take apart thing where they started taking um, computers toasters lawnmowers you name it things apart and putting them back together again which um, uh, again is it it it, it was fascinating because it all came from the kids. It was, it was back to that agency and it started from the questions of what is it that you like about this video game compared to that? And uh, um, it didn't take them long to actually not be talking much about video games. Um, it's, it's really about something else. And Jeff, what do you find about um, learner differences? Like by following your Twitter feed, you seem to be a polymath, but in Rod's intro, he mentioned you were an English teacher uh, among your other descriptors. And I remember showing my mom once who was an English teacher and the associate head of good private progressive school, a video of high tech high. And she said, Jell, are you going to hold up that school as an example of what schools should be like? And I said, I don't think it's the only example, but I think it's a good school. She's like, I would have hated that school. When I was in high school, we had to, you know, take apart and put apart a radio or something. And it was the most miserable experience of my life. Whereas, you know, discussing James Joyce or whatever it is, 
uh, was uh, deeply interesting and satisfying and still is 60 years later. Um, do you find, you know, different sorts of things grab different sorts of people? Do you feel like it's important to, if she had stuck with the radio a little longer, maybe some different interests would have arisen? How, how do you think about that? Actually, that's really interesting. So in our school, I guess another thing that's really different is we work very, very hard to develop really strong relationships um, between learner, among learners, but also between learners and teachers. And part of the reason for that is that we, we really watch for that opportunity to personalize. And so in a lot of cases, we really do want people to go into the things that they are interested in, even if they're the only one. Um, nothing wrong with that. Um, and, you know, and maybe avoiding some things. But there might come a point where, as a teacher, we might think, you know, just on the other side of those bushes, on the, of this path that you're walking down, there's something that I think you really like that you would never pick in a million years. But after you've got a relationship with a learner where they really have had agency, they trust you because they can trust you. And you say, you know what, you should try this thing over here. I think you'd really like it. Um, and you might not, but I think you will. And they know they're not going to be forced to do it. They know it's not a trick. And then they try it. And we've had some learners who have tried things that they never in a million years thought they would like, um, you know, micro robotics uh, for someone who's, you know, only interested in, you know, reading uh, existential philosophy or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and it, we call it nudging. And so we do, we do nudging, friendly nudging when we know that it's going to be in someone's, when we think it's going to be in someone's better, best interest. But again, we're not coercing them or forcing them. We're just suggesting, hey, try this. I think you'd like it. And they either do or they don't, but they often do. It's interesting that you've got that yeah, in, in the right order, right? Trust first. Definitely. Um, it comes from agency. Agency comes from trust. You've got this, this, uh, this virtuous circle happening. And seems similar in part to what one might try to do as a parent, also looking for the thing that's just around the corner that the child might not uh, have run into. What, what are the implications for that for the system? That seems to require a lot of skill and discretion and relationships and um, what Margaret Wheatley and others call the below the green line factors around trust and relationships like if we wanted a whole system of those kinds of nudges, like what would we do? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, we need to stop pretending that um, a well-rounded individual means that everybody does exactly the same thing for exactly the same amount of time at exactly the same age. That's crazy. I'm not even necessarily sure that well-rounded actually means anything anymore. I, I'm not, or at least that you don't spend your whole life becoming well-rounded as opposed to maybe just, your, your K to 12 years. I think you have lots and lots of life ahead of you to be rounded if that is actually important. Um, but I think the below the green line stuff is um, if we actually focused on that more and kind of trusted that learners are going to go where they need to go because they actually, they actually, if you, if you help them understand themselves a bit more, they are going to go where they need to go. Um, generally speaking, um, you need a, you know, again, it's almost a coaching approach with them too, where you're sort of looking at somebody asking them powerful questions. They're adolescents. So, you know, they're, they're figuring things out. Um, but as opposed to sort of pushing them in a particular direction or sort of herding them like cattle in a particular direction without them even knowing it's happening, but involving them in that and, and asking them questions that help them make decisions about where they need to go next along the way. Um, that's, that's all the system needs, but, but it does require, a willingness to be flexible, um, a willingness as uh, Rod was talking about writing down stuff on his, uh, in his, on his lesson plan with his supervisor in his student teaching year. Um, you have to be willing to allow for emergent learning, which terrifies some people. Um, if you have four-year-olds, there's nothing else but emergent learning. You just wait and see what they do. And then that's where you go. But all of a sudden when they're like 15, you, it's sort of like you have to have everything figured out ahead of them. Like the road has to be fully paved and lined and uh, with signs up. Um, no, it does not. Um, but, but that means you retool your school to be um, responsive in a particular way, not, not without any planning at all, but sort of thinking about what's, what does it look like is coming next so that you're able to respond well 
Um, and because we work, we don't work in classrooms in isolation. We work as a team of teachers in our school. We kind of cover all the bases um, disciplinary wise. So we, um, we team up sometimes. We, we find people out in the community. We take kids out to the community, send them out to the community. So, you know, if there's something that someone needs to do that I, I can't help them with myself, I go get somebody from down the hall and say, hey, let's, uh, let's get together and meet with this person so that we can support them. So it's just, again, you can't do that if you're in a block structure where the bell rings and you're in a room with 30 people and you got to wait an hour and seven minutes before the next bell rings so they can be with a different person for another, you know, same period of time. That structure has to go. Um, and then you can do it really easily. That sounds simple. <laughs> it's simple, but it's not easy. <laughs> exactly. Conceptually fairly simple, but uh, diff difficult, difficult to do. Jeff, um, what you've described between the, that relationship between teachers and kids and agency and trust and, and the nudging, um, how do you as a principal um, achieve that with your, with your students and your staff? And I'd suggest perhaps your parents. Do those, do those same dynamics stay in play? They do. It's, it, this is what's interesting about this. I, I actually think we've created a, almost like a little artificial, uh, I don't know how to describe it. it. School isn't a thing in and of itself. It's a part of our society. And I think the way we work with learners in a school should be kind of the way we work with human beings. Uh, Cause they are, they are, they are you know, actually human beings. So I ask parents difficult powerful questions sometimes. They ask me difficult, powerful questions sometimes. We we challenge each other. We try to help parents know why we're doing what we're doing as opposed to just this is what we're doing. Um, and, our, and our teachers as well, um, they're all coming out of, um, you know, a, a teacher education program that is the very, you know, the typical one that, that we probably all did, which is, you know, plan out your lessons, meet your outcomes, make sure that you have goals for each lesson and that you can measure them and all that kind of thing. And all of a sudden we're changing to a thing where you might have 20 people with 20 different intentions, uh, five different activities. Some of them are collaborative. Some of them are solitary. Um, so a lot of it is just supporting teachers and giving them, giving them what they need in an, in an emergent learning kind of way too, to say, I think this is the time when this teacher needs a nudge in this direction, or I think this teacher needs my help to be able to think about um, competencies as a measurement instead of uh, an outcome of a course. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the same thing. It's personalized. Um, a personalized society like human beings. And it sounds like um, small scale is part of that, that everybody, the teachers need to really know a manageable number of students and you and other people who are working with you need to know uh, teachers pretty, pretty well for that to work. Um, which brings me to something we were starting to talk about on Twitter, which is uh, assessment. Um, and I had posed a question on Twitter, something along the lines of, um, you know, in the United States, we do a lot of measuring and reading and math. And, you know, so there's this kind of dilemma, like, should we be trying to measure other things? Like, you know, should we be trying to measure science and history? And in some places we are measuring science, but, or, you know, beyond that, should we be trying to measure you know, uh, intuition or agency or empathy or other kind of higher goals we might have. Or conversely, once we start measuring those things, would there be incentives to, to game the system? And, um, you know, I remember my aunt uh, was, a, was a visiting nurse in New York, and um, there was a system there where if the patient made progress on, you know, whatever indicator then they would get more uh, money and resources. And so she said, you know, all the nurses knew that you should like really depress the ratings the first time you met with a patient so that the ratings could go up so you could get more resources. So uh, that everybody knows that those kinds of systems can exist in lots of different spheres. So uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? How, how should we assess things? Well, I think, I think there, it, it is good to assess those other things because I do feel like what we assess is what we are telling people is important. It's what we're telling them is the reason for being here. But I do also really fear the, <laughs> the gaming of the system or really what it what I think it is, is we're really bad at measuring things. Um, we kind of try to make everything into a thing that we could measure with a ruler when rulers only measure very specific <laughs> kinds of things. I often use an example with people and I'll say, if you had a 
an overly hot cup of coffee and you unfortunately drank it and it hurt and you say to somebody whoa that is hot and they'll say what temperature is it you say i don't know and they say well then we don't really know if it was hot because you don't know what temperature it was it's like no it's hot it hurt it's like yes but what temperature was it what's the number um i really think sometimes we talk ourselves into these really bizarre ways of measuring things when when in fact the measurement can be can be quite a bit simpler at least at least maybe a little bit more nuanced to go with the thing that we're actually measuring so i think when if we're going to assess these things we have to be really careful that we don't just create a one two three four rubric or uh something that turns everything into a number that can be turned into a letter grade i think we have to we do have to be careful of that or it will be uh just uh, you know the next thing that we measure really badly <laughs> what, what do you think about that rod um you were a superintendent and thinking at the system level. Um, how did you feel about assessment or measurement of different sorts? Or how do you feel now? I, I Now I feel conflicted. Um, I, I'm not, it, it's, a, it's shifting ground for me a little bit. Um, I, I continue to believe there is a place for large scale assessment. I, I think that's important in some ways done done well i i think in this province and and it is very much the cup of coffee the hot cup of coffee that jeff's just articulated which jeff thank you for that story i i think i'm going to use that um it's quite brilliant um if we looked at our at our, our indigenous students in our indigenous communities um you know who've been burned by the hot coffee and we keep looking for the magic number will tell us when it gets to a uh, hundred and whatever degrees and we'll start to worry about it when it's burning uh, all the way. Um, so I think, you know, some large scale assessment has, has, has been good in some ways for us, uh, for ringing some alarm bells around equity and, and learning, um, uh, with, with kids. Um, done poorly it's it's such a blunt instrument and it and it i think all it does is ring some alarm bells other than that it doesn't really tell you much other than than there's a potential problem here we need we need to to dig into it it's when we ascribe too many things so i i think about a, a colleague of of jeff's and mine's chris kennedy a superintendent in west van who would rail against um the foundation skills assessment um as a measure which we do here in bc in grades four and seven and and then on the other hand, he'd go, but I like it because it shows that while we're doing all this very different kinds of instruction, we're, we're, we're moving towards competencies, we're competency-based work, we're doing all these other things, it still shows that our kids can read and write. If, if, that, if, that's, if, that's what's, if that's what you thought it measured before, you can continue to think that's what it measures now, and, and we haven't lost anything. In fact, we're... we're improving on those measures and we kind of viewed PISA in the same way here in this in this uh, province um so I'm a, I'm a bit conflicted I, I i worry when it gets in the way of the whole story i worry when it gets in the way of listening to the voices of of especially kids who are telling us that the coffee's too hot or too cold and um we're, we're getting too too worried about numbers so i'm a bit conflicted and Jeff, on Twitter, you said something about uh, why. Wh why do we measure, not just what we measure? Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with Rod about, I think a system needs to have measures to know how the system is doing, but I don't think we should ever conflate an, an assessment of the system with an assessment of learners and their learning. Um, they're related, obviously, but I think um, to me, the why assessment, this is you know the good old uh, assessment for learning assessment uh, as learning, as opposed to just of learning. I think if assessment is about giving somebody information that's going to help them know how they're learning, um, what they're learning, and then what they might do next um, as they move towards an intention or a goal or an objective, to me, that's a, a much more important why for me um, as, as now where, I, where my head is than anything else. And I think the other ones just come as a result, but the, what you're measuring as a system then is much higher level and farther down the road. It's less granular. So to me, the granular assessment, why is what does a learner need right now to be able to know enough about their learning to keep learning? I think speaking from a United States perspective, the, 
way that large-scale assessments have poisoned the waters of the trust that we were trying to discuss earlier um, has been really unfortunate. Um, I think there's a lot of distrust between teachers and people uh, higher up in the system, and that's because of the way in which we um, conducted assessment. So I think it's reasonable to have some um, basic ways to know how students are doing some basic things, but I think that we need to remember that assessment is a sort of means to a larger end, which is improving the system. And so if it is clearly countering that end, then uh, we we need a different way of, of doing assessment. Um, I am drawn to our colleague, Rod and I work with uh, John Watkins, who's done a lot of work in the sphere. And uh, one of the things he's been saying recently is that assessment is a, a kind of a symptom of distance. That if we were closer to our learners and we looked more closely at what they were doing and how they were doing, and we did that in smaller communities, and then we just kind of aggregated all of those snapshots to see what was happening, um, we we would be we would know a lot more than we do the way that we're trying to do it at distance now, and that when you do it at distance, that's when you create all of the perverse incentives. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting idea, far more um, almost Scandinavian in, in its approach to having teachers spend longer periods of time with the same groups of kids to get to know them really well, and and um, the the need for you know those those uh, high level large scale assessments is uh, almost gone because we we actually know how kids are doing, we can see them, we can watch them, um, we can talk to them. Yeah, and they know, and they know too. Yeah, I think I think. When you're close to them, that's a really good way to put it. And you had asked about scale before too, Joel. And I think what we do is, you're right, it does require a smaller scale to have that closeness. But that doesn't mean that if you were in a larger school, you couldn't create that scale by kind of having some smaller pods of about 100 or so, which seems for us, we're sort of finding is about the magic number where you have a really nice critical mass but also a small enough scale that you can get to know everybody. What we find now is that if the assessment is for learning and as learning, our learners can tell us, we'll, we'll say, tell me about how, how you know how you're doing with critical and creative thinking. And they'll say, oh, here, I'll show you. And they show us and they tell us and they've explained it very clearly because they know, they know because we, the assessment conversations have been so intimate and so regularized and so ongoing that like they couldn't care less about a report card. They couldn't care less about a standardized test. Um, those are just kind of fun and kind of things they're sort of curious about, but then they kind of like get on with it after that. Hmm. Just further to the scale question, Jal, um, just out of curiosity, the the school you went to, the high school you went to, you described as relatively small. I, I wonder if if in scale it was not if if it wasn't pretty similar to PSII. Definitely could be. There were uh, fifty five kids in our. Uh, graduating class, Jeff. How does that compare to you? A little bigger. We're we're we have we're gonna have about 120 kids all together um, next year. We have about a, just over 100 right now. Um, but again, I feel like the podding. If you were in a really big school, you could easily divide that up into some smaller pods for sure. So we have about we had about 26 kids in our grad class this year. So Jeff, One, um, oh, go ahead, y'all. I was just going to say one interesting thing is there were 55 kids in my graduating class and there was, it was a K to 12 school and there were two years of kindergarten. So multiply all that by 14 or so, which gives you maybe 700. Um, there were just really strong debates about, you know, could we go to 710? Could we go to 730? If we got to 750, would it change the character of the school? So it's interesting, you know, at a much smaller scale, how committed people were to uh, maintaining the size and the way in which they thought that the size really did relate to all the other things they were trying to do. So I don't disagree with you, Jeff, that it's possible to take larger high schools and divide them up into uh, academies or other other things. And there definitely are downsides to uh, smaller schools, but I I do wonder whether size is sort of an anchoring characteristic around which, you know, a lot of other things 
need to connect. Like you, all the pieces need to fit together and size is one really critical decision you need to make pretty early on because it affects a lot of other things. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I would say that that's true. I also think that the fact that we keep making these giant buildings um, that are schools and nothing but schools, I think is also interesting when you look at some of the spaces that are available around our communities that would fit, you know, 100 or 200 people really nicely. Um, and uh, you'd be part of the community instead of separate from it and gated away from it. But that's a whole other conversation. Jeff, you've talked about, about um, you know, potting as a potential way to, as one small example of, of, of a way that um, you could try to maintain some of those relation, those key relational pieces that you have going on at your school and, and some other schools that in a, in a larger setting. Um, this year in British Columbia, in the, as a result of, the, or in response to the pandemic, schools were, were required to pod and to create smaller entities where kids weren't moving around amongst the whole population. They were sort of sticking with, I think at high schools, it was around a hundred, some, something like that, or 120. Um, which brings me to the question of, how did, how did your school, how did PSII and, and your school and your students do throughout the pandemic? How, um, you know, how I'm sure it affected them greatly, but, but, but how did you manage through that? And um, what did you learn and what kinds of things would you like, you know, lessons learned, do you think for your school and for the province and for other schools that we'd want to be thinking about hard about as we move into next year? Well, that's a question. Um, I think, some things didn't change a bit. So um, the the personalization, uh, the the fact that everybody had their own has their own goals and they're working on their own questions, that didn't change at all. That was exactly the same. Nothing changed. Um, for some kids, it was probably even easier. Um, the part that was different was we often have had these um, kind of ad hoc connections that happen between different kids' lines of inquiry. And it was a lot harder to bring them together when there were layers of plexiglass and masks and um, all kinds of other physical divisions to make it harder for them to come together. Um, that was a little bit trickier. We had to be a little bit smarter about that. We did a lot of things with technology. We um, we used um, you know virtual rooms. We used you know Zoom and Breakout, of course. Um, we used Discord, which is a gamers communication tool that we used in school to try to create little communities within it. Um, we had to work pretty hard at it, but, but I think what we got out of it is we realized that what we're doing is not something that learners do in isolation. It's not a, it's not a, a solo endeavor. It, there is a community there. And that was something that I wasn't sure of. Like I, people would say, why are you a bricks and mortar school? And I'd say, well, like, I don't know. It just feels like we should be. And then after this year, I know now exactly why we are because it, it, that community, at least in an inquiry-based school, that community is vitally important so that people are not alone on their on their journey that already feels a little bit weird when they compare their, themselves to, you know, their cousin in a mainstream school. And they're going, how come we're not learning about, you know, X right now? Because that's what we're supposed to be doing right now, according to my cousin um, in, you know, in Science 9. And I'm like, don't worry, it's okay. Um, as long as you're with a community of people who are all kind of experiencing that together, it's not so bad. Cool. Thank you. Um, Jeff, you've given us so many things to think about, uh, and we could continue this conversation um, much longer. And, and I think we're just going to have to try to have you back. I would, uh, would love to have you back for a, an on, a, a, a ongoing and deeper conversation. But we want to get to the lightning round. We, we don't want to let you off easy. Uh, we, we have some skill testing questions uh, for you uh, that uh, try to get away from the 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 thoughtfulness of your current of the answers that you've been giving us into the into the shoot from the hip um <laughs> to answer so so uh joel if it's okay with you maybe i'll i'll start off um jeff what's one thing that lots of people in education think is right that you think is wrong uh I would say sometimes people focus a little bit too much on on compliance or um, making sure people are doing certain things at certain times and they need to let go of that. All right, Jeff. Here's a nice juicy question that we would love a 30-second answer to. Should we follow the PISA leaders like Finland and Singapore? Why or why not? Um, that's a trick question. I, I think we should follow... Finland is an interesting... Well, yeah, I think we should follow them in the sense that they understand their own culture and use that culture 
as a way of designing an education system that worked for that for them. I think we should all be doing the same thing rather than trying to just sort of replicate it. I think we should say, what is it about our culture that we should be referencing when we create our community of learners? But what if our culture is all about uh, individualism and uh, I don't have to wear a mask if I don't want to? <laughs> maybe, maybe just disregard my whole progression. We should copy Finland <laughs> blindly. <laughs> um, actually, that's a good point. I think, um, I think maybe it's a discussion about what are the values that really underlie what education is actually all about and kind of start again. And I think we get caught in the trapping sometimes of education. We could just start to look at what are the values and how do we get to those? How do you actually make sure that's what you're doing all the time? Yeah. And to be um, less flip, I, t I very much agree with your answer that um, I think there are some commonalities across some of these countries, which we might be able to learn something from. But the key is connecting to one's own culture, values, goals, nature of one system, and then building coherently from that. And I see a lot more, you know, here are the 10 things you should do and a lot less like what kind of system are you in and what are your values and therefore what should you do? Absolutely. Yeah. Jeff, what, what's another field or domain uh, worth education emulating? Where, where should we be looking for um, inspiration? I know this sometimes makes people's eyes roll, but I, I think if we looked at um, technology, um, when I say that, I mean sort of like digital technology, I think they're very uh, good at being disruptive. They're very good at looking for how, how can I do the things I need to do often on a shoestring when no one even understands what I'm talking about to do a thing they don't even know that they want to do yet, but they will when I'm done. Um, uh, they, they, chain, they break all the rules, they make their own rules, and they're very community focused. Um, I think um, we can learn a lot from that from that uh, area. All right, and then last one, uh, what what could we learn from John Abbott, who I think is someone that uh, both you and Rod uh, know and admire? So much. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest things we can learn from John Abbott is uh, when he talks about uh, the transferability of um, of learning uh, from one domain into another. Um, he always tells a great story about when he was a boy, he was a very good wood carver. And uh, the school that he went to really didn't care that he was a really good wood carver. And he even won a competition where he was, you know, the best boy wood carver in the country. And he told them on like Monday morning after he just won this and no one cared because he had to pass his Latin exam. And at some point he realized that if he could be a good wood carver, all of those characteristics that allowed him to be good at that could allow him to be good at other things. There was a massive transferability that always sticks with me. And he said, then he just applied it to all the other things like Latin and other things that he didn't like quite so much, but knew he could do if he, if he thought about how to apply some of the same competencies. Yeah. So much to learn from, from John. Um, f for me, one of the key pieces was, um, you know, his, his question that underlies so much of his, of his work was, um, are we expecting enough of our young people? Are, are we trusting him to be all that they can be or, or uh, you know, when he uses Peter Puget as an example of a, you know, who at 12 or 14 was a navigator, you know, on, on the ship that brought uh, Captain Vancouver over to the West Coast. And, and uh, if you can do that at 14, then are, have 14 year olds changed or have our expectations of 14 year olds changed? And, and I think, you know, that to me really struck home and it's something that I, that I, I continue to think about and, and something that I think Jeff's put into action with, with his school of, of, of trusting young people to, to, uh, to lead their lives and trusting them to have, to have great agency. Yeah, just real quick. I think that, um, you know, the older kids get, the more agency and responsibility they want. But conversely, what we do is we further infantilize them, and then they resist more, and it all leads to this kind of downward spiral over control. Whereas, you know, Sarah and I wrote a lot about the extracurricular realm, and I think one of the reasons the extracurricular realm is so powerful is students can exert leadership. And I think what schools like Jeff do is they 
sort of convert those same qualities and tendencies and the sort of best selves of adolescents and they invite them into the main part of the day. Yeah. Bring your whole self to school. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, we want you all here. I, I think it's a, it's such a great message to kids and it builds as, as Jeff has talked about that, uh, trust and agency, uh, that, that, uh, that, uh, you know, in, in that beautiful virtuous circle that, that, uh, built on each other. Jeff, my friend, um, we've kept you long enough. Um, thank you so much for joining us, uh, for this podcast, uh, we do definitely need to bring you back. And and you've got uh, one of my favorite stories is you telling a story about a kindergarten child thinking he's the fastest kid in, in the class after recess one day and, and how a teacher turns that into a, a magnificent um, uh, magnificent lesson. And, uh, and, and it's, again, that, that trust, that's that emergent teaching and learning. Um, which so exemplifies what you're doing in your school and, and helping us in, in British Columbia see and understand and see how it can be. Um, so we'll need to have you back. But, but thanks, Jeff, for your, for your time here tonight. It's been my pleasure. I, it went by so quickly. I, I would love to be back. <laughs> Thank you. This is Rod Allen. And this is John Maida. And this has been Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Have a great evening, everyone.